Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This week, we are talking to Spencer Gordon. Spencer is an oil painter in the style of the old Impressionist masters. His work is shown in local galleries of the Seattle area, and until COVID ended large gatherings of people, he was holding workshops for students who wanted to learn his approach to painting. We talk at great length with Spencer about the process of getting your work shown in galleries. For many artists, this process is a hazy mystery, but Spencer is able to put the world of galleries into a simplified perspective that gives artists an easy-to-follow roadmap. This doesn't mean that if you're an artist trying to get into the gallery world, your experience will match Spencer's exactly, but this conversation will give you solid landmarks to look for when you're in the wilderness. Take this information and apply it to the resources that you have available in your own life. We then launch into a conversation that I hope you will find as fascinating as I did. We discuss the use of NFTs in combination with traditional art. NFTs are a divisive subject, and currently they are making everything so much more complicated. But I think one thing is undeniable. They are here to stay. And so I hope that conversations like this one will help sort out the mess and lead to a healthy and productive relationship with this new technology. Quick note about my co-host this week. Moose was laid out by his second dose of the vaccine, so he had to sit this one out but our good friend Liad was good enough to jump in and co-host for this episode. It was the perfect combination of voices considering Liad is a very accomplished traditional artist himself, as well as having some very well-considered opinions about the world of NFTs. Please see Liad's links in the show notes along with Spencer's. And without further delay, here is our conversation with Spencer Gordon. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into art? and swirled up in the snow cone and frozen <laughs> in the block of ice. How did I get stuck in this? Yeah, like, when did I get frozen in? Um, yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm a traditional artist. I usually work with oil paint. Um, I've, been, uh, I've been working as an artist for, I would, I would say, it, it, there's a beginning point that's a little nebulous because you start selling stuff before you call yourself a professional. So I usually draw the line about 2014, 2015, somewhere right in there. Um, and uh, I, I've been studying since, I don't know, or I studied for about seven, eight years, um, like immediately after high school. Uh, uh, I did like a six months of of me time and then went straight into it uh and have been slow rolling it at first until uh till i found my way to an atelier um at first it was art schools and self-taught uh yeah so i don't know now i've kind of worked my way into landscape uh painting mostly um impressionism um i showed a gallery here in seattle and uh i've been kind of enjoying it for a long time. I 
I should mention before we go too quickly down the road too that uh, Moose is feeling low today. He's been put down by his second shot of the vaccine. So we are joined by Liad, has been good enough to jump in and play co-host for the day. Um, Hi, everyone. Yeah. So, and so I'm so used to just rolling right into it. I, I totally forgot to. <laughs> I can just pretend to Everybody's moose. like, who, okay. who is this guy? Welcome, everyone. I'm Moose. <laughs> moose is being played now by. Moose, your hair. Some other dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in seriousness, um, did you go to art school, Spencer? Or is it mostly self-guided, self-taught? Uh, I, I did kind of a three-part thing where initially I went to art school and I, I did about six months of, of traditional art school. Um, and then uh, I just couldn't afford it. Um, so I dropped out for a bit and, uh, and I did self-taught for a couple of years with the occasional class. Like whenever I could afford one, I'd go take that one class. And then another three months after that one was over, I'd be able to afford another. Um, and then I got lucky enough to, uh, to run into somebody who uh, runs an atelier, which is a, an old school style of, of art school. Um, here in Seattle and uh, right, right across the water in Bellevue, actually. But uh, yeah, she she took me under her wing and was like, I've seen your work and I'm going to help you go further with this. So uh, so she decided to to take me on as a protege. And uh, and I studied with her for four years total, um, kind of overlapping with when I started working. Um, and uh, I just continued to study with her and. And then I continued to uh, to work as an assistant afterwards with for her. So that was uh, a big help as well. She was my initial connection very much into the community. That sounds like a um, like a classic, like a real atelier. Because so so often these art schools they they say atelier, which basically means like non credited art school that yeah. you pay for classes. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, kind of con artistry, basically, in, in without you know trying to butter it up too much. Uh, it's uh, it's very clearly like there's a lot of ateliers that are people teaching private classes and just saying, I don't have any accreditation. This isn't going to be worth anything, but here's a diploma that means nothing. Um, technically, that's in the same state as how uh, how Valerie's is because there's no accreditation place for ateliers but she runs it like an old school rembrandt style you know atelier and uh you know she she doesn't push somebody further unless they can go further so she's uh she's very careful about that and uh i think there's two of us now too so it's also a very new atelier to uh to actually launching artists so i'm i'm case study number one well, it's working. Um, it's an interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting tangent um, that I hadn't thought of until now. This talking to you a little bit about this idea of of ateliers, because um, I I think that it is an important part of this conversation that we're about to have, um, and it's something that kind of flies under the radar. Like it's something that people aren't 
largely yeah. aware of like kind of like um, unless you're in the fine art world the fine art world you know or you've been privy to it in some way the concept of an atelier i mention it often and people don't know what i'm talking about um why do you think that is like what what is like once you're in it it seems to make so much sense like of course this is how you would do it this is far superior to anything else that you're going to be able to you know get a hold of uh as far as like if you want to learn like old school craftsmanship you know of uh, of, of painting and draftsmanship and stuff why aren't they better think- known I'm I'm not sure exactly and on in some cases cuz there are a few that are really well known but I I think it's largely just the that there were too many con artists like the lack of accreditation early in bringing ateliers into the modern world after you know the the depression basically um and you know moving over to to the new continent and things like that didn't didn't really happen for ateliers. They stayed in the old world. They only really had the masters who would hand it down from one to another, still in Europe, pretty much. So, like, one by one, they start to die off, and then they start to not have a good protege to take over, or they don't make enough money, and eventually they just start whittling themselves down because there was no plan to to push it forward into the future. It was very much a, like a patriarchal system that just has no, that has no future. <laughs> they didn't plan for like, you know, having no sons basically. So oh, it's, you know, I think the modern ones not really taking off though is, is something that like, there's too much, there's just not enough accreditation for it. Nobody has gotten a, a real, uh, way to to make any any metric for it, and uh, and the the traditional metrics for art schools are are very much pushing against it because of the old alliances with uh, ateliers and galleries, which pushed them out entirely. So now there's weird rivalry. Well, I have a question, and kind of touching on that subject is. Um, your i forget her name you said um but your mentor um was valerie collie okay. yeah. uh sorry yeah no i'm horrible with names but um i'm assuming she's fairly successful as an artist um has she yeah. helped has she um aside from teaching you has she helped you into the art world like did she guide you into it in addition to teaching you how to or helping you learn how to paint yeah, absolutely. Um, in in the beginning of it, she she took me to a bunch of. That's one of the things that I think the atelier really has to its benefits is that the classroom is not the only place to go, and it's feasible to take one person, two people, somewhere to anywhere. Pretty much, you don't have the like. I have ten people following me. I can't take a class into a small gallery. Kind of a problem. So she took me to small galleries and would show me. You know, these are people you should know introduce them to me and introduce me to them, make me write down their names afterwards um, and, uh, and write down as much as I could remember, kind of, you know, take notes on, on our interactions and make sure I remember the connections from one to the other um, and kind of get like a feel for each gallery and how it worked, who, who was running it and why, um, because it makes a difference, you know, if they're just in it for the money, then, they don't give a shit about your work at all 
and it, it's very clear. Um, if they care about only the art, then they're not going to care about whether you get paid. So there's kind of a nice balance you got to find in the middle there. That uh, I don't know, there was a lot of things like that that she took me through in the beginning that were really important. Um, she also showed me through kind of the, the charitable museum side of things that I didn't really go into myself too much, but uh, I, I didn't fit as well into it comfortably um like i wasn't comfortable in the environment enough to really feel like i could push forward in it um so i let that one go but uh but there is that whole other side where there's you know charity auctions and collectors who go to those and buy from there and she introduced me to a lot of those same people who who were a possibility for a way that i could go with uh with a traditional career um and then she ended up introducing me to the gallery owners of the gallery that I am now represented by. So, and helped me kind of get in the door with them a little bit, or like showed me how to get myself in the door rather. Um, yeah. So I want to linger on this with one more question because it ties directly into the, like the first sort of uh, preloaded questions that we had. Um, and this idea of, artists that want to be artists (laughs) you know that want to do something with it other than you know a a, a hobby and they're they're looking into this um curtain of the pale between them and this world that is seems kind of inaccessible to a lot of people and they're trying to think you know well how do i get in there and where where does my training begin would an atelier kind of situation be something that you would recommend or are there times, you know, like when maybe a more I don't know if you want to say traditional, you know, or uh, more commonly thought of art school would be the way to go. Uh, Like who, who would go in which direction and for what reason? I think I, I would recommend a, a combination always like the, there was there was definitely benefit to the art school style of learning. Um, there is a lot of information that's just spewed out at you, and in some ways, it's hard to take it all in um, and make use of it. So, I found that like while my decision was based on me not being able to afford another semester, um, it ended up being really helpful for me to take to take the next six months and go. Okay, I don't have more tools yet. I can't afford more tools yet, but these are the ones that I got from that time there. What can I do with them? What can I, what, how far can I push with what I've got? Let me understand all of these things the best that I can. Like, uh, at least that much can help me to further from there and kind of taking these stop gaps that like, uh, basically I allowed for that, the, the helix, um, of learning and, and, uh, I think you you think you know what I mean the, that image that uh, it's like the helix of knowledge to to understanding and progression um, of like as you learn more you get better at a completely opposite and um, yep yeah uh, pace to to each other yeah that I think that made a huge difference in kind of allowing myself to do that where like I took the six months afterwards and was like let me just study let me take what I've learned push it forward and then you know, change mediums, do it again, change mediums, do it again, 
go back to another basic, do it again. And then, uh, and then, you know, as soon as I could afford a new one, take that class and push forward with the next piece that I get until, you know, until eventually I think the atelier was the most useful for me as once you've got kind of 101 down the like basic color theory, basic, you know, uh, light shadow gradients. Like you can, you can work with form and shape a bit. Like you don't need to be totally down the road to like second year art or anything like that. It just, you know, you've got a grasp on some firm basics. Then an atelier helped me to focus where I wanted to go with it. Uh, I think I, I didn't even have a medium of preference at the time. Um, when, when I started learning from Valerie, um, I think I'd tried oils for like a month beforehand in like, I took one class that featured an oils section and, uh, and then I just didn't have the money to afford oils. So I moved on and, uh, and stayed with acrylics for a while. Um, but Valerie pushed me into oils and helped me find, uh, some, some connections to local companies that made it cheaper, um, to afford them in the first place. And her, uh, one of her big focuses is in non she was a doctor for years and years and years before um uh, a pediatrician specifically up until uh up until she started practicing art um and then you know eventually working in the field but uh she she brings that like non-toxic focus really heavily to it so there's very little to no solvent ever involved in any of her painting which is strange for oils um there are no cadmiums no leads no anything like that she basically uses three colors and a white um and mixes all of her colors from that um with a few you know high chroma additions occasionally when she needs something like a phthalo or, you know, something you can't achieve with actual mixing, um, which, uh, which I thought was much more affordable <laughs> and, uh, a good entry point to be like, Oh, I need four tubes. Oh, I need oil and four tubes. I can do that. I can't do 9 million tubes, all these solvents, all these different mediums, but I can, I can do those, like, six things. So that, that made the bar to entry better, too. I, I, that's Which one I of think them. helps in an atelier setting. Right, yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite things, of, of all things, is when enigmatic, very esoteric, things are distilled down into a couple of very easily digestible uh, components that are very accessible, very affordable, very approachable to the uninitiated. And it's, you can just immediately start working with it. it. And it blows my mind every time. That's like why it's so great. It's like people think about oils and they think about this like <laughs> huge studio of like, bizarre concoctions and tubes and vials and yeah right right yeah it, it, spencer is gesturing at his studio behind him it's very compact it's very well organized um and not casting aspersions on anybody that has the like crazy alchemist scientist you know wardrobe of a of a studio but it's just nice to know like when things can be you have that option of kind of like eliminating all of the 
X, well, I don't know what the term is. I don't want to say excess because that does sound derogatory, but you know, like all of the, all of the extras, all of the peripherals down to the essentials. What can I start? And yeah. I, I, I met your mentor once and, um, you know, through natural conversation, it came up that I had tried oil, oil painting for a while, and now I'm in this position where it it didn't seem feasible because my son's room is, uh, you know, just a, a a couple feet away. All of the solvents, all of the chemicals in the air, not wanting to do that. And she was like, "Oh, don't have to have any of that. Let me tell you about walnut oil." And it was just, <laughs> "Oh my god, this is awesome." That's how um, she got me, basically. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because yeah, this go also goes with my uh, painting approach. I use uh, walnut oil as a medium and nothing else. Um, I only use solvents to clean my brushes at the very, very end, very briefly. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's, and I'm a very um, a big proponent of like uh, doing limited palette, a lot of mixing, never understood the point of having like, you know, 20, 30 tubes of paint. Like I, what would I even do with them? Like, I don't yeah. even know. That is, that's pretty much the philosophy she, uh, she instilled in me from the beginning. I've, I've branched a bit out, but I, I use walnut oil primarily with a little bit of Gamsol, um, which has become a, like, uh, a, a, choice of necessity over time because it speeds up drying time so like as i get closer to shows and openings when deadlines come up and i need it to finish drying faster um because i'm behind that's when i need the gamsol a little more <laughs> but uh but other than that, like I'm, I'm much in the same route with I. I prefer the walnut oil. I don't really use anything other than that. I, I like to, you know, I like to keep it very simple. Um, I do get a little bit liberal with Gamsol, but it's also an an odorless one, so it's uh, it's one that you know. It is the safest of the um, of the mineral spirits, and if I can, just a real quick. Um, warning to everybody who wants to get into painting try it for the first time with oil painting be aware that uh rags if bunched up and thrown in the bat in the uh, trash can spontaneously combust so look into that there are options out there I'm not going to get into it now but just be aware that's a danger that's not spoken of all the time and don't trust the ap on things um, that says that things aren't toxic entirely I once got really sick from uh, the fumes from acrylic medium that says AP supposed to be non-toxic made me horribly sick. So, you know, be careful with your materials. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I, I, I got a, a laboratory trash can actually for my studio just for that purpose. Cause it's, it's got the elevated base. So uh, if a fire happens, it doesn't actually touch the ground and it will snuff itself out with uh, a closed cap. Um, but, uh, but something like that is really important <laughs> for a studio like this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so someone in the, in the chat is uh, echoing one of my thoughts. <laughs> Um, wait, what? <laughs> when you mentioned things like acrylic mediums being potentially toxic and the AP, uh, one, uh, 
for those that may not know, can you describe what the AP is? And two, if it's telling you that it's not toxic, but that's not something that you can rely on, is there something that you can rely on? Is this just research necessary? Yeah. Um, so the AP is the um, on the bottles and tubes of paint. It'll say, I think it's CM and AP. AP is supposed to be non-toxic. Um, it's a little like designation. Um, no, not associated press. Yeah, it's supposed to be um, non-toxic. And the fumes from it literally made me sick. Um, I don't have a great sense of smell. My girlfriend could smell it immediately. So um, try and use, you know, sensible uh, precautions. If it if there's a strong smell, open up some ventilation and um, don't eat your paint um, is the motto of my channel. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what else uh, on, uh, to add to that in particular. Yeah, oh, okay. I... Uh... I did just check a few too, and they just don't even have it. I was gonna be like, "This is the logo," and then I checked them, and they—they're not even trying. They're just like, "Nope, this is gonna kill you." Yeah, no, this was for an <laughs> acrylic matte medium that I, I was using to prime uh, paper or something, you know, instead of uh, basically instead of gesso. That's what I was using it for because I do oil painting as well, but you can use it as a base. But yeah. yeah. No, so yeah, there have been uh... some. There have been some links that posted in chat um, for more information on this, and I copy-pasted that, and that will be included in the show notes too, so more information will be available um, on, on the recordings. Um, but let's swing back to uh, your entry into professional life. Um, oh, yeah. Because I want to get back to this idea of the like great mystery of, of fine art <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the gallery world. I'm... We've probably all seen the meme, you know, where it's like for any given subject, step one, start painting. In this example, it would be start painting. Uh, step two, keep painting. Step three, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step four, profit. <laughs> so talk to me about step three, because there's this big empty spot for a lot of people between being a painter and being a successful artist. And you've talked a little bit about your experience, you know, with your mentor and in the atelier setting and that kind of like introducing you into things. But then like going into it, did you have the conception of being like a, a, a professional working fine artist going into it? Or is that something that you discovered along the way? I think initially I was initially I was just like I, I was still working as a pizza delivery driver to make make the bills um and uh, and studying and when i booked my first show i thought of it as like this is awesome i would love to be able to supplement my income with some art sales but i didn't really see it initially as a as a job um just basically because i I don't know. I, I hadn't. I hadn't felt like I was putting enough time into it at the time. I felt like I was putting so much time into my day job that it didn't feel like it was a job yet. Um, and so there was kind of this weird magic moment where I had to take a week off from work to finish the paintings for the gallery show, and I realized that I was now spending more time painting than I was delivering pizzas and. Uh, and so it kind of had this immediate transition to like, okay, I'm, I'm putting my hours in 
am I, is this doable? Like, can I, can I make a go of this? What does this mean? Like, where does this, this go? So I, I went to Valerie and I was like, what, what do we, you know, I know we're, I'm showing my work, but how do I make this viable? And, uh, and so she started talking to me about the fact that like, you can't have one stream of income. It's just not, that's not a thing. You can't just be like, I'm going to get into a gallery. People will buy my paintings from the gallery and I'll be good forever. That's not a thing. That may be a thing way down the road when you're way bigger and you've got, you know, a huge price tag on every painting, but you have to get there first if you even get there. And, uh, and the whole way along the road, you got to fund it or you won't make it. Um, so you got to do something other than just, just paint things because you're also going to get better as you go. And so there are going to be, you know, the painting you did the first year you were showing in a gallery is going to be embarrassing at the last show. <laughs> so, you know, I had to take that as it was and be like, all right, I'm, what can I do that is a useful skill that is part of this world that will be uh, a paying thing? Um, so I had a variety of options, basically. Uh, like, I'm, I worked with photography for years, so I'm good with cameras. A lot of different things are require cameras on the way to paintings or from paintings to sales, like photographing other people's artwork and creating, you know, their, their web images for their online portfolios, for the, for the galleries catalog, for, you know, all of those different things, uh, framing other people's paintings for this purpose, framing for the gallery so that you can do all of those like assistant work for galleries that whether you're in them or not, um, are really good jobs for it. Like, in the same way as in any other industry, you get a job in the field that you want to work in, regardless of if it's a shit job. Like, you want to work in music? Go get a record store job, even if you are not going to, you know, not going to end up being a record store clerk. Like, that's your, your first one. You want to work in the field where things matter. You get to keep on the pulse of it at the same time, because it literally just puts you in the right place all the time. So... I did a lot of that, <laughs> a lot of odd jobs, a lot of like, you're having a show? Do you need a wine passer outer man? I have a suit. <laughs> like, little things like that. That's all, you know, it's just little stuff, but like, then the gallery owners start to know you as well. So you start to like, you start to be a recognizable face when, you know, while I didn't attend gauge specifically gauge invited me to be an assistant and then a teacher because i kept going to people and helping out with things i showed you know i went and cleaned brushes for a ton of different artists um and then and then for classes after that and so like if uh if you know if you need brushes cleaned i'm good at it and i can do it quick um i can do it on the spot and i'll bring my own materials i also will not work with extreme solvents so if you do like liquid um call someone else <laughs> that kind of a thing is you know is it's a good business like reputation to have out there for me and it helped me to find you know things in the field that allowed me to continue to work while I'm getting paid for like small things that I I'm kind of already going to do. Like when I was going to go do a brush cleaning job, I'd take mine. 
And, you know, I only have five brushes to clean. They have 40, but, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean them at the end, too. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to waste the soap that is already activated. It's, you know, it's one of those kind of things where the material is live. Why not do it? And uh, I'm not going to charge them for the time I'm doing mine. But, like, at the same time, like, I'm not going to leave it at home and wait till later. Then I kind of work all of my tasks into the business. T- you know what I mean? Like, I pair it with other things I'm already doing. And, uh... Same with framing. I'd find artists who are going to be doing a show in the same month as me, and then we all order frames together. I get them all delivered for all of us, and then they bring me their paintings. I put them in the frames. Makes it easy for everybody. This is I wasn't really aware that brush oh, cleaning was fine. something you could get paid for. I mean... I don't know how many people are in the brush cleaning game, frankly. I think I might have been like a weird entrepreneur of this one. <laughs> Good on uh, you. Like Maybe you were saying, just, it's, a, you know, it's a thing. It's one of many things that you were doing. So that's. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of just like finding all of the odd jobs for things people need done that they that they wouldn't otherwise think to, to hire somebody for and just being like, I, I can do that. You know, like, uh, you need to build this thing or you have a, like, you have a giant sculpture that you're having trouble working with because it's flat on the ground all the time. And you want to just be able to spin the damn thing around so that you can like look at it in the same angled light, but have this, you know, from the statue from a different angle, but the, you know, and, uh, so I, I'll build a platform, you know, Fuck it, I, I got I got a drill and some hammers and you know things like that. I can put together a platform on wheels that you can spin around and move your ridiculously large uh, <laughs> sculpture so that you can see it from the same light source no matter what. Like, li- you know, it, it's a ton of random things, but like, I kind of just uh, I, I stumbled into a lot of them basically where I just started putting the word out with people. First, it was. At first, it was my mentor. She was the first one who was like, I have 250 brushes from all my classes. Would you clean these and I'll pay them for pay you for it? And uh, and then I was like, yeah, wait, yeah, this is the thing. I can do this. And so then I offered it to another artist who had a similar problem. And, you know, it, word of mouth from there. Is um, I'm curious because, you know, every place is so different. Um, is it a very, uh, like geographically small community uh, uh artist community where you are like is is it that the you know everyone's close by or share studio space in a bigger building or something like that that you were able to kind of like drift through these different options a little bit um my mentor works out of her home studio um I kind of just found meeting places is how I thought of it. It's like, uh, there are a bunch of, of places that rent studio space in Seattle. I'm, I'm sure Joby knows a few, <laughs> um, that, uh, like in downtown, especially there are a bunch of those like old beat up buildings that they've turned every single square inch into a different studio. And, uh, I, I, showed at a gallery in Magnuson park that is part of, uh, it's the, the space gallery, I think. Uh, like all capitals um, acronym style um, and uh, they they mostly run studios out of that building um, and rent them to people so 
finding places like that where artists end up having to go is is what i ended up finding to be the most useful like uh artists and craftsmen in seattle here too is uh, an art store um they rent their back room as a teaching space for a lot of people so i'd go there and rent the space and do the same thing and then just hang out at some of them like just be a fly on the wall as much as like it helps to to know people it also helps to just kind of get your foot in the door and f- make your way into knowing people like there's a whole lot of just being social and uh and just like putting yourself out there is a huge part of it like unabashedly <laughs> yeah that sort of uh speaks to one of the questions that mandala brought up in the chat is is how did you reach out and get those clients for those service jobs to get involved oh, yeah. in the industry yeah so yeah, you 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 were kind of speaking about that um a, a little bit um I, I don't know if there was uh some more advice that you that you had it it i would if possible i would like to connect that question to one that i had which is uh or are there other things that you would like new artists that are coming into this uh things that you would like them to know going in uh, I wrote a few things down actually on that one. Um, Excellent. Uh, I mentioned many income streams um, that uh, that like a gallery is not going to be the end all be all. Even if you get into one and are showing regularly and selling paintings there rather quickly, it's not going to be a like you got to live in a really shitty place for that to make your your ends <laughs> meet. And uh, and so you know that's that's a big part of it the other thing is like trying everything just fucking do everything like we we study a lot as artists and we read a lot and we look at a lot we're we're professional observers after a fashion in a lot of ways and one of the things that i think in traditional art school and in self-teaching I didn't get as much of, and that I think the atelier may have pushed me a little harder with was having somebody who is just kind of standing there only able to watch you. And if you don't do anything, it's boring as shit for both of you. So they just like, they just want to shake you to make you do something sometimes just to like, yeah, we got to move. We can't just sit here anymore. And like, it, it makes you just try stuff. It, you know, that's, uh, that's something that like she she gave me a challenge that I'm I'm gonna try and do for everybody else soon too that uh was a butter knife challenge um like halfway through my atelier learning she saw me painting one day and was like I, I'd picked up some ratty brush that was just destroyed because I'd forgotten mine and uh, and she was like what is what are you how are you what is happening right now? I could just give you a stick or a butter knife and you could still paint with that. Right? And then immediately it became like a no longer a joke, but now a challenge. Like, let's see if I can, let's see what happens, what I learn from using like a thing that's not for painting. And, uh, and so that, you know, that taught me a lot of things too, just like breaking outside of the box and like, doing things learning from from experience is a huge part of it that like i tried things i never would have thought to try that were part of you know a curriculum i learned years ago that i'd never really thought to put into into effect or like even thought of how to put into effect until i was holding a butter knife and i didn't really have any other options you know 
a mutual friend of ours uh, that we that has been on the the podcast before, Pink Eye Epoxy. Uh, we've been in her stream sometimes and she's painting with a stick or or a straw or like, okay, what, what have I seen in a a cigarette, butt? you know, what did I see in the street today that I can pick (laughs) up and start using to, to paint with? Yeah. Um, so there's lots of kind of different ideas about, oh, sorry, I, before I jump ahead, were there you said that you had written some things down? Were there some other things that you had on that list? You oh, to I mention? think that was the list. I think, uh, yeah, that it was mostly the like making sure that you keep in mind that you're not going to be able to just do. So like you can't just paint all the time and sell the paintings. It's not going to be the end of it. It's uh, you got to leave time for like a whole business side of it, for marketing yourself, for teaching, or or some something else that's going to make money. And uh, and then the that like doing things is key. Um, yeah, I was actually super fascinated to hear you talk about that because it really reminds me a lot of the the tattoo industry. Actually, you know, where, where people are asking me all the time, like, "Well, how do you become a tattoo artist? Like, how do you break into an industry that doesn't have a school that you can go to?" Um, never mind it, things that call themselves tattoo schools because that's not actually a real thing. But I always say the same thing. It's like, well, get to know tattoo artists, get tattooed figure out ways to make yourself useful. That's like 95% of the way that everybody gets into the industry. And it's a very, it seems very similar to what you were just describing. Um, the thing is that like people have this no, or well, not a notion, but lots of different ideas about what the gallery world actually looks like. Um, and what it means to be a successful, artists and i put success in in scare quotes as it should be um and maybe there's this idea that you're either nobody or you somehow like grease the right palms or meet the right people or whatever and then you become picasso you know like there and there doesn't seem like what you're describing a lot of like kind of in between so is there is that can you is there a tiered structure you know are there mid ranges to the the fine art world absolutely there there's uh there, there are huge varieties of tiers and uh, like whole different tier systems that like halfway interact and overlap depending on region some of them are local some of them are global it, it kind of depends on how your market is or what market you're targeting that seems to be the from what i've found is the only real commonality between any of the tiers to each other is like if you're targeting big money and like large collectors who will you know bring scary you know the the kinds of money we think about when we you know when we see like uh you know the auction houses and things like that 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 is a specific set and they have a very closed entry system it is a long climb to get there, and they're very snooty. Um, and it's uh, it's kind of just how that works. Is like that's that's one subculture of of how to how you could buy art, and I think that's the most traditionally thought of one, um, which is why I start with it. But uh, but I think the local ones seem to me to be the most viable um, because basically there's no room for new artists to emerge in a, in an old world market like that. You can't just 
you can't bring in new guys who are going to sell at the auction houses for $20,000. Nobody's heard of them yet. Their name doesn't mean anything. And that's all this market cares about. So they have to grow in another market in the first place. They need farm teams, basically. And that's what I think a lot of the local markets and the smaller global markets really are. And uh, I, uh, I, I display in a local gallery here. Um, they get good press around the Northwest and a lot of people recognize them here. When you get towards Oregon, they still have some recognition by the time you make it down towards California, not even into California yet, nobody recognizes it anymore. And that's kind of just the way it works is there's a replacement for it in each area. Like neighborhood galleries feed downtown galleries, downtown galleries feed larger cities, downtown galleries, which feed eventually like name brand galleries that are, that are much bigger and have only a few and select like LA, New York, big cities like that, that are uh, scary. Um, and that's when you make it to that higher tier of it, which you got to climb a long way to do. Um, and there's a lot of us along that ladder as it were like this is really refreshing to hear um mainly because i i mean even i had this idea like i i as many you know traditional or fine artists that i know even even me i i if you would have asked me you know how you break into the gallery world my mind would immediately go to i don't know if we've all seen the movie basquiat um, but there's a scene in the movie where it tells the apocryphal story of like how he met Andy Warhol and he sees Warhol having lunch in a diner and he just barges in and tries to sell Warhol little sketches and Warhol is like, Oh, I love these. These are so great. And then they like become lifelong friends. And so like, even like knowing that that's like probably embellished fiction, I would still have this idea that like, that's how you would make it that's how you would make it big anyway is like you're in the right place at the right time and you meet fucking Andy Warhol, uh, you know, and he, and he likes your, uh, bar napkin sketch or whatever, but you're telling me that there is a grind. It's not easy, but there's a grind that you can do where you can, uh, advance. Let's not say, you know, I, I don't know what kind of peak people are, are reaching for, you know, but it's like, it's not like you're relegated to being like fucking nobody if you don't luck out. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, there, there's a lot of people who have the, like the luck stories that, that get famous, like, like that, like Basquiat and, and Warhol. But, uh, I think a lot of them are, are really just small instances of slight help. Um, it's kind of, uh, I, I liken it to the the tubes, the secret tubes at the end of Mario levels, where you jump over the the flag and go beyond it to the backside, and you can skip a couple of levels. And you don't really skip that much. It's only like one, maybe two, maybe a world maximum. But like, you're not going to get that far ahead. But it, it'll give you a little leg up. That's the maximum you really get from something like meeting a huge, you know, growing talent and getting to like getting into there and you don't really have the ability to just like walk up to a random one and be like, here are my things, make me a star. Like it, it doesn't, you don't really have that. There's no access to that. So it's not really a thing that happens beyond like 
we're all in the grind together. So some of us will make it. And I think the reality of it is that Basquiat probably just went to the same restaurant that he always went to and Warhol went to the same restaurant he always went to. They kind of knew each other from being in the same circles. And so he had the ability to actually go up to him and be like, Hey, I don't know if we really, I don't know if you know me that well, but you might've heard of me. I, I just want your opinion on these. Like I, I respect your work. Would you give me a critique? I imagine that to be how it actually went and that they, showmanize the rest of it into you know into what we know um because the reality is is yes you help your friends get up like you know yeah i I, if i had an extra slot in a show i'm gonna look to a friend first to fill it i'm not gonna go let me pick some random artist who i have never met before who i have i'm gonna have to go find and identify their work as something i like and you know and then trust that they're gonna be able to fill the show like we we go to each other for reasons like I, I can trust that if I go to a friend and I say, I have a slot in my show, it's a two person show. We each get half the gallery. I need you to fill the other half. It's on my name. If you don't, I'm the one booking this show. Can you do that? And if they say yes and they can't, I'm fucked. I have to fill the artist with somebody else entirely. And they know that when they do that. So there's a like, trusting your friends and knowing that somebody who does good work and can perform to a deadline like that makes a huge difference when, when it comes to that. So like, I, you know, that was, that was the first show I got was my, my mentor was like, here, I need one person. I know you can do this. I know you can sell. I sold out that show. Like she, she was right that I could do it. And she believed in me, but she also like, helped me to find my way to do it was like, I needed to get out there and market and find people who want to buy them and get them to the gallery, give them a reason to go. Like I needed to have all the paintings done and do all of that at the same time. And like knowing that, that I could do that was an important thing that she couldn't have known if I was just some random person. So there is a help that comes from knowing people but you have to kind of know them on the way up, not, not once they're huge. Like if I run into Jeremy Mann or, you know, Jeremy Lipking on the street right now and tried to like, even, even if they have heard of me through some weird connection that we have through to each other, he's not going to put me in a show because I didn't really come up with him and, and like, learn with him and show him I haven't shown him that I can do it and that's really the big thing so like it's it's an important aspect of being social with other artists to show that like to show each other like we do work we don't just sit around and you know and that's a big part of it so yeah that that wouldn't have made as good a movie though so no (laughs) um there's a question in the chat uh Bankenheim asks Um, The notion of working without a parachute is almost universally lauded by artists and business owners. Quote, failure is not an option. As someone whom is both creator and entrepreneur, is there a safe option or is risk necessary or reward in your opinion? I mean, yeah, 
I think risk and investment, both of time and like reinvestment of your own capital. Like there was a there was an, a long period there where I was just investing more money. I'd I'd make money and it would not go into my bank account. It would go directly back to something that I wanted to further my career. Like I I for my second show, uh, me and um, and the other artists who were on the bill split the cost of an advertisement in an art dealer's magazine um here in seattle the sada sada um and uh and that netted us a huge variety of collectors who would never have seen our work otherwise but it was expensive as shit and it you know (laughs) it cost us a lot it took a lot of time working with the magazine company getting everything sized and you know we did it all ourselves so we didn't have somebody like making it fit and uh and be the right proportions exactly with you know the dpi and and file type that would work with their weird printing program um, and uh you know like that that part of it was it was it's risky to throw yourself out there and be like i'm gonna invest in a huge advertising package that maybe nobody's gonna see i might spend you know months worth of rent on on this ad and nothing will happen with it. But if I don't, then I'm never going to find out if, if I could have gotten, but it's not a, but that's not a complete gamble. Like, it's not like you don't know that people read the magazine or something. Like, it's not like you're like, I've never heard of this thing, but maybe, right. I mean, like there's also some like common, not, I guess common sense, like analysis benefit to it. You know what I mean? I I would assume. Absolutely. I think the, the, like the question comes down to like with art, it's always the subjective nature of like, how good am I? How good is my work? How good do they think that my work is, is the real question because they're the buyer and, or the potential buyer. And so it's, it's whether I'm putting my best piece forward. It's, did I pick the wrong piece to put in that ad? Should I have put this one in? Was this a better, you know, would, what would have played better? Like there are different risks involved in it that are, uh, that, that make it feel like more of a, a cohesive risk beyond just the basic, like putting it into the magazine. It's, it's a little more of the nuances of it that become more risky. Like I can put a, a terrible piece that I should never have put into the ad in there and no one will like it and they will see it. So their eyes will definitely make it there. I knew that part of the, of the marketing worked, but now they, they know that I'm shit or they think that I'm terrible because of this one painting that was awful. Like that, that like there's, there's a a give and take to it in that same way. And like, there's a, a similar risk with like investing your time in, in going and like, like volunteering at galleries, like I did early on to get them to see my face so that they would recognize me when I eventually gave them a portfolio, um, which I never did right away. I think that's what I did forget for new artist advice. Don't open with a portfolio. Don't walk in and just hand them a portfolio and say, I'd like to show at your gallery. They have 5,000 people doing that every single day. It's ridiculous how much email they get like that. Make, make your face matter like help first (laughs) yeah so kind of a a theme that i hear um between kind of what both you guys were saying um is that there's a there's a bigger context to this idea of risk it's uh, one thing that i um would modify in the question that bankenheim 
asked is, is this notion of working without a parachute? And certainly um, the idea that that's like lauded by artists and business. I, I, I don't know if lauded is so much uh, it, the way to put it as um, um, what's the word, you know, when you kind of like overhype something. Well, I guess kind I of put it on a pedestal. Yeah, it's uh, exaggerate, exaggerated yeah. or idealized in some kind of way. Idealized, you know that yeah. it, that there's this like this like crazy uh, you know Rambo esque quality to like going into the fray, and you know you like I don't it if you, working without a parachute implies something much more catastrophic than what actually ever really happens in the real world, which is more of like the the up gradually upticking graph and yeah there's going to be like big dips down towards the bottom but like an actual like type one catastrophic failure how like what is what would that even look like in terms of a career like how badly do you have to fuck up to just write yourself mm. out of like the history books entirely that seems extreme you know what i mean so like any failure is kind of within this context of the overall picture that you're creating which is a way longer game than any one step along the way so i would say maybe think about it a little bit differently you know it's not like you're yes it is a risk yes risk is necessary absolutely but you can comfort yourself <laughs> that if it does go to shit as it often does that's fine it's okay that's not the last opportunity you're going to have yeah absolutely i think uh th like like Joby just said, there's they're much smaller falls. The like the safety net is, you know, before you you started trying to be an artist, you had a, a day job. You can keep a day job. A lot of artists do along the the early part, especially like if you dip back down into it, that's not the hugest fall in the world. You know, it's 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 not safety net categorically because it doesn't feel like you you were in such a travesty. You know, like you weren't on a high, uh, like a, a tightrope act falling. You were just like a couple of feet off the ground. You know, you just like stubbed your toe and stumbled a little. I so, always thought of it as like, um, not so much a safety net as if you like you're going to fall, but it's more like not really getting off the ground because you know if you have a day job like. A day job is a lot of times looked at differently than like a career, you know? So if like, if you're working and you're making, you know, whatever, I, I don't know the amounts, but like a bit above minimum wage or something like that. And you can live off of that in your, you know, twenties, but you don't want to be living off of that in your fifties, you know, that type of thing. Like, I think that's the thing, but it's, it's a, it's a long haul game for sure. Like it's a marathon. It is not a sprint. Absolutely at all and and also the thing and i don't know how you feel about this and i'm projecting some of my feelings on it but you know where i thought i would be at this age and what i thought i'd be focused on is so different than the reality of, of where my focus is and my interests are um it's wild you know so there's a lot of turns along the route at least for me there have been no, absolutely. I think uh, in the in the beginning, I thought I was going to be working in photography for you know, that's that's what I thought my medium would be. I 
now like I use it as like a tool on the way to paint now at, at most. And it's, you know, it has nothing to do with that. I, I, I could never have seen myself in a gallery back in the beginning either. I, I would have thought like a different route was my way to go, you know, like it was, uh, it seemed like more, I was going to be putting photos on the wire and like waiting for a magazine to pick them up kind of a thing. Like <laughs> it didn't feel like the, the, that direction. So I, I think, you know, there's a lot of like following the ride to see where it goes, finding your interests and like there there's a way to make it work with most of these. I think the, I think the biggest risk to me is, is not trying to do it and not like putting enough of yourself into it. It's like, I'm, I, I have not found that anytime I put time effort or uh, like put myself out there on anything like this, that, uh, that it came to a bad end. It, you know, the only thing that happened was I shut up sometimes instead. Yeah. And certainly, you know, if you have a, a family and a mortgage and like shit like that, you're the, the algorithm for, for your fucking risk parameters are, is going to look a lot different, but that's kind of, you know, what you said, Liad, it's, it's, there's common sense involved. Don't go crazy. <laughs> Don't lose yourself in it. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, you know, don't see it as like a, you know, all or nothing, you know, and oh, well, I'll, I'll never be able to do that because I just I got to work this day job. It's, there's always like space for small incremental grind as well. Yeah, it might take you a little bit longer. It might be a little bit more difficult, but it's there's no one way or the other. Um, I want to come back, though, to this idea of making it big because we're talking about the upwards graph. We're talking about Andy Warhol and <laughs> overnight sensations. Um, where is the graph going? I know that this is a very subjective question. You can you can answer it. Feel free to answer it just for yourself, or if you want to speculate on you know what you think of uh, you know what or what you think other people might feel about it. Like in in, in this world of galleries, fine art, traditional art, where is the graph going? Like, what does success look like? Like, what's the top, or just, like, what does the success look like? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Understanding that there, um, is, there is no, like, peak to the graph. You know, there's no, like, little guy yeah. standing at the top of the x-axis going, yeah, I made it, you know, but there's something <laughs> up there. There's something that you're pushing up towards. Yeah. What is It's kind of like, you know, there's people further along that graph, at, and, like, where are they, and what does that look like for them at that, at their point in it? Like, I don't know. For me, I, I'm thinking of Richard Schmidt. That's basically what I think of is like, I, he just passed, but he's the, he's the greatest of all time, the oil painter of, to end all oil painters, in my opinion. And, uh, he's, uh, I mean, he's, he's the epitome to me of what happens when you get to the end of a gallery, uh, rise and you can go further from there, but like, I feel like he took it as far as as during his lifetime was possible. If you feel, if you know what I mean, so like the, there's the next one will carry the torch further, but he carried it that far. If you get what I mean, um, and uh, that's you know from teaching uh, enough people to create another generation of artists was a huge influential part of his existence. Like we don't have Casey Baugh, Jeremy Lipking, Jeremy Mann. We don't have any of these people if we don't have Richard Schmidt. Like he's 
just like inspiring a huge number of people and reaching that level of people with, with what you're doing, finding ways to like, uh, to pass down kind of the collective knowledge of it. Cause I think, you know, we don't really have a, a library of Alexandria for art as it were. Like there's no compendium of how to mix all of our mediums and make this blend and do there's pieces everywhere along the way, but there's no big book of it. So as much as we gather, I feel like it's, he gathered a, a crazy amount of it. And I kind of aspire to do something similar, get a lot of knowledge and pass it to as many people as possible so that they have the tools to take it the next step. And like, I think, you know, to me that kind of lies outside of the gallery world and how I measure his success. Like, it doesn't seem to make any difference whether he's in a gallery according to what I just said, pretty much. But uh, but I find that, like, that helped him to reach more people, too. Which, you know, in, in a very real way, I think of galleries as the communal meeting spaces that we all have to go to. That I've been describing as, like, a good place to go and connect with other people and get, you know, get more networking started. Does that... Does that mean that you, um, aside from doing galleries, you teach and, um, you know, do like the atelier type of stuff or that you just plan on doing that? I'm curious. I I had um, pre-COVID. I had been doing mostly workshops um, that uh, they're basically one to four lesson packages is what I used to do where I do one every week and you come in for a a three to six hour. Um, you can leave after three hours if you want rest of the time is painting time. But, uh, like those kind of workshops were a big part of it for me. Um, that was my, my way to pass it down to people. Um, and, uh, and then I took a couple of private students, but I, I tried not to do, I, I didn't like, group classes at the time they were un- unwieldy for me um just with my style of teaching i i find i get more information to a student by a one-on-one or a two-on-one um so i found that that was that was best for me since covid uh it's, it's been a little interesting um so you know we'll see uh one of them wants to start back up um and is set up to do it again um through zoom and etc now but uh workshops are uh, kind of unfeasible in the same way which is what i've been adapting um i'm i'm i can see joby itching to to segue (laughs) no um not at all i got distracted by someone mentioning in chat that i jacked up your twitch link so oh oops I'm gonna. I'm gonna. gonna uh, It's fine. I'm gonna. Speaking of workshops, part out, but I just wanted to. Oh yeah. Oh, there's an E after the S and an A after the L. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the spelling. Okay, I'll I'll fix that in a moment. But Leah, did you have a a a question? Oh, uh, I was just uh, kind of a comment about the um about the workshops. I I did I took a workshop during COVID with a um well-known artist and um you know i don't want to judge the artist too harshly as in general regarding what the workshop would be like 
but this was his first Zoom workshop ever. And um, uh, yeah, the, um, I, like I said, I really don't want to judge him too harshly, and I'm not going to mention his name, but it, it was less than uh, satisfactory, we'll put it that way. Yeah, I, I had... I had considered doing uh, Zoom workshops and then I kind of just thought it through and did like a weird practice session on my own, imagining what would happen. And I can see these issues. I can see how this would happen. It's, uh, there's, yeah. there's so much that like just being issues. able to be there makes such a difference that like, I, I don't, it, like the variety of cameras is, is like a bit, ba- you know, basic technical issues like like i do color mixing that's one of my big workshops so for me that's a nearly impossible one it's like how am i going to teach you to mix colors when i can't see what you actually mixed because your camera looks different than mine and from the next guy and the next guy and like the whole class's cameras look different so what what did you all mix like what is this what did i make it definitely and then the screen calibration and yeah and on and on exactly so it's it's one of those where like i have found that technology makes it difficult to do something like that our eyes are are our eyes and as much as they vary a bit from person to person they mostly see hues of light the same way um or wavelengths of light in the same way and uh yeah, it's not the same when it comes out of a screen and through two two forms of technology. So I, I didn't see a way to really adapt that for me personally. So uh, at least to the live function, um, what I've been aiming for that I'm scripting and working on filming is instead a video version that'll be kind of like Skillshare style. Um, watch the video and then communicate with me send me pictures on your phone it'll be phone corrected which is pretty standardized and i can probably at least figure that out um based on you know how phones work with each other um it's more it's more uniform and standardized so that at least can uh can slightly bridge the gap and then it also will be just one person in each file which has made a difference from private lessons um in the past that uh even if they're using their cell phone it's the same camera so i get used to how their mixing looks um how their colors look on their camera and uh and that helps bridge the gap but uh but it's also just really unruly to try to to gauge or to control a class with a zoom call having you know people talking over each other is impossible. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it ends up just being either me talking all on, on my own and having no feedback with nobody really, I can't really tell who's engaged or not in the same way where like you can, you can feel and see the different eyes on you when they're all in a circle in front of you, but you can't really do that in the same way when they're all boxes to focus on in a screen. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's harder to keep track of. So I, I find that like that, I get why it would be hard to adapt. I think there's an, a different way that we could approach it that would, uh, that would be helpful. Um, and that's what I'm, you know, hoping to adapt for the future. Cause, uh, cause I, I missed that. It was fun. Yeah. I remember, uh, late 2019, maybe around there somewhere you were talking about some plans that you had for 
workshops and if i'm remembering right it was something along the lines of like you know like during the like the lavender festival like taking groups of people up to like do landscape paintings you know and having like workshops and educational stuff i mean i you want to talk about making it big that sounds just awesome like if you, you know if you can you know be in that kind of setup that sounds great so along back along this idea of the upward momentum um pricing pricing is something that comes up in in, in my world the the freelance illustration world uh all the time it's probably the number one most misunderstood maybe the most discussed question or misdiscussed question and i but i have this idea that just um from a subjective standpoint the idea of pricing is even harder in the gallery world is that is that accurate um because it's is is more subjective like there isn't like the you know the industry standard there's no day rate you know in the illustration world you can find places where you're gonna get this is what this is you're getting paid this much by the hour what's the so um, yeah go ahead yes and no um there's there's kind of a different there's a lot of ways to think about it in some ways. Like, uh, I think when, when you phrase this to me, one of the, uh, one of the caveats was there, is there a pressure to undervalue and things like that? Um, uh, in the, in the pre, in the prep questions. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the biggest things is like the gallery world is a higher priced market. That's something that like is just kind of inherent to it. And as much as like, it seems snooty to just be like, we have more money. It's just the reality of it is like that. When I, when I talk about finding a market that and like moving from one market to the next, this is one of the bigger higher priced markets and the people there expect it to have a higher price tag, which is kind of in, in two ways. That is that they're not as shocked by it. And they're more shocked if you do undervalue it. That's, that is a, like a red flag for them. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a real artist. I didn't know how to price this properly. So I put it too low. And now it seems like this might be the only thing I ever do of, of real quality that just was a fluke and everything's going to stay at my standard pricing scale. That's way too low quote unquote for this one piece um, or this one collection or whatever, you know, whatever they're seeing, however many paintings they're seeing um that like that tendency to want to undervalue your work and price yourself lower is a is a really really bad pitfall um there's there's kind of just a an automatic in some ways with a lot of galleries however that keeps that somewhat at bay is that like the galleries kind of just know their market for the most part they know who comes in and how much they're willing to pay for a thing of any size like they know what who they have their own receipts they know they know who's buying things and uh and so they can tell right away kind of if you're totally overshooting it and they will warn you um your gallery at least if they're a good gallery if they're just a shitty gonna throw you to the wolves gallery which there are a few 
they won't, but most good ones that you'll end up ever wanting to be in will work with you and will tell you, you know, this is what we think it should be valued at. This is, you know, you tell them first what you think it should be valued at, and then you kind of meet yourself in the middle, however however long it takes, however many rounds that takes. But uh, it's helped in that way, which is why, like, in some ways it's not harder to determine because you have this helping hand of another interested party who's going, we need to make money off of this too. We're going to help you value it high enough to do that. Um for us as well as for you. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that helps, that's a huge benefit, but at the same time, like there's the, uh, the other side of it where like, yeah, it, it is extremely hard to know if you're, if you're pricing it right, there's no real metric for it beyond what people are willing to pay because ultimately that's, that's the end. Uh, that's the end result. Is if you price it too high, they aren't going to be willing to pay it. If you price it too low, it'll vanish in five seconds, and then it will also not be treated as valuable. So it'll get lost in five seconds. Like they might buy your painting, but it'll end up in a drawer, or you know. I'm so. curious. Um, I've heard um, people having a an experience with the art galleries where they um they basically the art gallery knows that they can sell you know they have some collectors and they can sell a certain amount but outside of those collectors you're basically over you're i don't want to say overpriced but you're pricing yourself out of sales because no one else you know can buy it i don't know if you've seen that or experienced that i'm just curious I, I have seen it a little bit. I, I think it's more common at the next tier above me. I, I'm a neighborhood gallery. Uh, downtown galleries are really common for that. Um, it, it is often basically a, you came from one tier, you're moving to the next. Are you ready for it? We're going to try and price you up to that. Um, it Like when you fall short and you don't have people who are willing to invest that much in your paintings, it... Uh, it does send you back down to neighborhood gallery. And like, I, I have not done that downward yet. I have not done the upward to get to that challenge yet, but, uh, but that's also like a higher price tag than, than I'm currently working with, which is where like, it just starts to matter more, even more like when, you know, when the painting is, is a thousand, it's, it's one thing when it becomes 5,000, it's another. Um, and that, that jump makes, it does feel like a strange cast system, Mandala. Yeah, it's, it's interesting yeah. that Mandala used that phrase because that I actually had that. You did use the same the, phrase in, again. In the, in the questions, yeah. Um, we, can come, we can come back to that though. I, I, yeah. I don't want, I don't want to cut you off if you had more on that thought. No. But. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, one of the, I, I think it just comes down to like it. Once you go to a higher level of market, you can't just expect the same people who were paying at the previous market value to just jump up with you. They didn't get richer. You need to find richer people who are still interested in it. And like, that sounds fucked up, but it's just the reality of it is like, 
when you want to sell it for more, you need to find people who can afford to pay that more. And, uh, and you know, it's the same thing with any market is like, it has, it's only so deep. You can only dip the same pool so many times before it's empty. And, uh, and some pools are deeper than others. So like, I, that's where like more income streams, more variety. Like, uh, I know a bunch of artists who do a variety of types of subject matter for different tiers of galleries. Um, like their, their portrait work is only in neighborhood galleries, but their landscapes and cityscapes are in downtown galleries and they're, you know, they're in magazines for that, but, but nobody knows they even do portrait work. And then, you know, you stumble in it in, in a neighborhood gallery because they've been doing those since, you know, since they were starting out and a bunch of the people for that market group who want to buy those portraits don't have the money to afford the landscapes and cityscapes. So he just keeps selling them at, uh, at the same prices roughly. He's upped it a little bit, um, each year, but like, it's like a hundred dollars each year per painting basically. Um, so it's, it's not gone up very, and not even every year, like every one or two, maybe years. I think it's gone up 300 per painting total in the time I've been tracking him. But uh, yeah, like that kind of a thing where you, you raise it a little bit, but you're still dealing with the same market. So you're, you're going, I'm getting better, so it's worth more, but you guys pay this much for it. It's not going to change. I'm not going to suddenly charge you three times as much for the same thing because they're the same people. They're going to be weirded out when you just go, yeah, it's worth more now. I'm, I'm better. I'm cooler. <laughs> like it doesn't, it's it's it it feels weird and so i think a huge part of it is about feeling to the customer on that one and how it you know we're we're playing an emotional game in a lot of ways and this is tugging on their heartstrings with art so we can't be surprised when that's a part of how they react to buying it too um it's uh <laughs> i don't know i think that's a cohesive part of it to me so with this idea of tears, um, is there a weird political shenanigan aspect to this world? I mean, if so, can you describe if how and can, you know what, what what can one realistically expect in that regard? By by politics, you mean like an internal politics or relating to the world politics, kind of because a little bit of both. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, column A, column B, you know, this yeah. idea of a caste system, you know, where it's like, yeah. oh, you're in the neighborhood galleries. No, thank you. Yes. And like trying to yeah. get into that, there can be a little bit of sacrificing pieces of your soul. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm, this is total hyperbole. I'm wondering what your take on it is. I believe I wrote absolutely to the sacrificing your soul. Part. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it, it definitely feels like that. It's uh, cause there's parts of it where, you know, some, some of the galleries are exactly that. And then some of them are nice and also a downtown gallery. So there, there is a variety to both, but like, I definitely see a, what feels like a caste system that like, if you're in a neighborhood gallery, you can step up to a, a city gallery like in downtown, but you are not going to be even, you're going to be laughed out the door at an international gallery. Like they won't even, you can't skip that level. You know, you got to get 
you got to go through each of the phases and it very much feels like being a freshman in a new high school every time you go to a new tier like oh they're all so tall and i'm i'm so tiny what happened like that that feeling is is real and you you do kind of have to deal with like being the new kid a bunch you're going to go through different tiers and it's like it is it is different markets it is different people who want different things and like and I mean, and that part of it is that you're going to be better by the end, just because time happens. And there's nobody who's starting out at like 19 years old, already doing international galleries and touring the world and giving, actually there's one lady, but that's Richard Schmidt's fault. Um, <laughs> um, she was like 16 when she started though. So at least she's got like five years on, on the trail before she started doing that. And uh so like there, there's nobody who's really doing that and it's it's not really a path beyond you know the imagination we really do have you know we have different people we're going to sell stuff to um the you can kind of find a market sometimes that is is just higher priced and break your way into it because of your subject matter too which is totally unpredictable sometimes like uh, I've, I've got a friend who used to work at the at the place I take my paintings to sometimes for like full uh, museum level digital quality photos of them. And uh, and she used to work as one of their editors. She stumbled into a niche part of uh, of making these fantasy creatures on um, on laser cut canvases and nobody would ever done them before. San Francisco went nuts for it and uh and so she you know now she's doing three shows a year and they're sending her to iceland and all over the world just to like do stuff um she's she found her way into that market accidentally by just painting something that was you know just exactly the right niche for a good market that could afford to pay for it and it produced like uh, some of her, a lot of her work featured like bugs and butterflies and things like that, where she could take a, a print of that and make them into a 3d version. Similarly, like her laser cut canvases, make it feel more visceral. And, uh, and so she'd make laser cut 3d, like realistic looking butterflies that were the same patterns as the ones in her paintings and you know had the brush stroke uh, accentuations on each print to give it actual depth and like and sold those you know in packs of 10 and like that was an extra side thing for her that brought a bunch of people with interest in like fairies and butterflies and kind of a huge variety of like you know, of subjects all together into one. Um, so, you know, sometimes you stumble on something, but, uh, but I think for the most part, it's, it's a grind through one after the next and looking for, you know, for a good opportunity. So um, speaking of selling your soul um, in that system, the like super mega top, we're going to call it top tier, like, the most money, the, the the auction houses that are selling things that like, you know, the, the things that make it onto newspapers and, and, and articles about like the, the ridiculous sales where, um, you know, s some of those, I mean, they're, 
this is known that there's like a warehouse, I forget what country it's in, but literally they basically move paintings from one room to a different room and then you own it. Like these people never even see the paintings. So like talk about selling your soul, like literally keeping paintings away from people, which is just, you know, awful. Um, but like, is there a, is there a tier where you're like, oh yeah, I don't want to get into that area because I don't want to even approach that, you know, kind of thing? Like, is there a level that you're aware of? From from what I understand, most of the paintings that are traded like that are of deceased artists, um, which is unfortunately simply due to the value that when when you die, your work is worth an insane amount more. Like, a case in point, the value of Richard Schmidt's work just quadrupled instantly. Um, like the day after he died. So that that is mostly the case, which to me feels like they have captured the escaping soul of a dying artist and put it in a bottle and now in a vault, and then they keep moving it from room to room to like give it a different scenery. Um, <laughs> and that feels equally ridiculous. But uh, I think for the most part, you don't really get to that level unless you're unless you're dead. Um, it's not traded like that, at least. Um, if you're alive and it's it's sold in that fashion, you kind of have more control. Um, a lot of the big name artists that are that do things like that don't really they don't they don't have to deal with a lot of that shit. They just they just have to paint it. That like once you get past a certain point, your name carries itself, and you no longer have to. Uh, lower yourself to it which like sometimes i see artists go through that phase um where they realize that like they've been putting on airs and making this big show for people they fucking hate <laughs> like for so long because they didn't want to be in that market or they didn't want to deal with this particular group of people and then and then all of a sudden they realize like oh i don't have to do this I'm, my name carries itself. People know who I am. I, my work has worth and there are people who do want to buy my work and they can now go to a gallery and be like, hi, I'm insert name here. And they just go, Oh, hi. And then they get stammery and offer you a show if they can get it out. Um, like that's, kind of it's a real thing that happens now because once you get to a certain level you're the gallery knows they can make money off of you because to them they're in, in business and they know that like you've proven just like when i offer a show to a friend and i know that he's going to be able to make the quota and sell some of his paintings and he's going to perform uh in, or he or she is going to actually be able to perform the gallery knows that these big artists are going to be able to really perform they have like a good price guesstimate on how much they're going to make off of whatever size collection they get put in there if it's 20 paintings they know how many that is how much that is and that makes it so that you can really just say no to galleries if you want and uh that's the goal <laughs> But, uh, but it's, it's a very high climb to get there. And I think there's a similar level of respect at each tier. So like 
while the big name guys get to do that at, at auction houses and don't have to ever fear that their stuff is going to end up in somebody's vault until after they're dead, at least. Um, like, I don't have to worry that I'm going to have the same thing happen even if I get to the top of the neighborhood one where people will recognize me and like, and they can, they'll let me into any neighborhood gallery. Um, if I get to the downtown one similarly and they'll let me into any downtown gallery, I'm not really going to have to deal with like, there's a level of respect to that, that like, they're not gonna, they're not going to push that on me. That's not going to be a decision I'm going to be forced to make. Like, no, I don't want these people buying my paintings. It it becomes removed from you having to interact a whole lot with all of them at a certain point. And then you also just kind of, you find the market that makes sense for you anyway. So like people who want to buy my paintings have an interest in basically things that I do for the most part um, until you get big enough that your name brings people in who don't care. You know, so like, you only fear that once you get to a big enough point that you're a commodity and not just an artist, um, or not just creating work, which I, I hope I find some kind of success, but not necessarily at that type. I don't necessarily want to have to feel like I'm, you know, a commodity. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where you would like to think that you would see it coming and that you would know. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'll never do that. will never happen to me because I have principles or I have self-awareness or whatever. But those kinds of things can get real slippery. But um, that's. Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, personally, I. You know, and this is maybe going to touch on a subject that we're going to talk about later, um, possibly. But um, I would hope that the people who buy my paintings personally buy them because they love them and want them, you know, not because they're like, oh, this will be a good investment for later. <laughs> and that's that's what I hope for as well. That's what I always want for for people buying my work. Uh and that's kind of where, like, you know, that's that's what kind of incentivizes me to not want to get too, too big, basically. Like, at a certain point, I, I don't know if... You basically price all the people out who do have that want. And, and that kind of sucks. So, you know, I just don't want to... I don't really have that desire to push to that level, at least, like... At least in the short term. You know, I'm not really looking to do that right now. Um, I'd like to share the information more and be more about like spreading art than uh, than just putting out a bunch of paintings that become valuable in a vault someday. And let's be <laughs> let's be real. It's probably a lot harder to do those, you know, relaxing uh, lavender field workshops if you're Richard Schmidt. There's probably a trade-off there. Like your uh, your your social capital becomes so tremendously heavy at that point that it's hard to just like relax around people. You've you've achieved celebrity status, yeah. and that's probably the one thing that celebrities complain about most is it's just like 
who the fuck am I if everybody that I'm around is looking at me as this weird persona of me that is not actually who I am? That could yeah. get really weird. That seems to be a kind of a big, a big fear for a lot of people. And in, in then I, I totally get that. It's a, I don't know. It's, it's terrifying. It seems like once you get in past the, the, like the initial fear, there are a bunch of artists who have shown that like they hung out with him and spent tons of time with him. But, uh, like Daniel Keyes basically lived next door for years and years, pretty much. He's just like in every photo of Richard Schmidt. And, uh, but at the same time, like he wasn't at first, he was just that guy, that mousy dude in the background of one of the workshops that, you know, you kind of could see. And I, I get that. Like there's a wall there. I don't, I don't know exactly how to break past it, but I could see how like that would be a problem. And I don't really desire that personally. Well, uh, using the lavender fields as another segue, um back to the covid or uh coming back again re re, re, re returning i don't even know what the hell i'm trying to say <laughs> revisiting COVID, maybe revisiting, COVID, yeah. covid came up earlier and yeah. how it had affected your uh ideas and forward momentum and plans for the future um obviously the gallery spaces are crossed off the list is there a sense for you of that coming back sometime I, in the near future i'm not entirely sure because i mean my gallery is still open and they are still hosting shows um they still represent me um but uh but it is not going well in the world of galleries in general um and uh i mean shows are just different i think the what galleries used to market was a social experience where you come in you see all of the paintings up on the wall in the perfect lighting where it, you know, it's all been set up for you hand out wine and crackers and cheese and stuff. And you all mix and mingle and talk art. And that like that experience is something that's missing from, from the market of, of galleries and selling art through them now, which has hit it really hard because now you are six feet away from everybody. You're all wearing masks and there's no, there's no like finger food or like passing out drinks. That's not a thing anymore. That just invites people to take their masks off. Nope. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not happening right now in the same way, which makes it, it makes it really hard to, um, to, to talk to people about your work, which is kind of the biggest part of an opening is like, I put all my paintings up and then I go around the room and I answer all the questions that people have about like, why is this, why did you do this painting? Why is like, tell me about it. Tell me a story. Like all of those, you know, inquiries are the parts that like, that's what people when they're falling in love with a painting want to know. And they can't ask in the same way. It's not, it's not the same interaction and that's so that's that's something that i'm having trouble replicating for those people at least because what they want is a very personal in-person interaction um that has you, been rough oh uh, well yeah go, go ahead. sorry there's always a slight delay sometimes with the uh, online yeah. stuff um 
have you done any Zoom gallery openings type of thing? Because I, I literally did one last night, and uh, I'm curious what your experience, if you've done that at all. Uh, I haven't been asked to do it yet. Uh, my gallery just started doing them um, two shows ago now. Um, they've been kind of, they, their whole schedule, they closed for so long that their roster went and the queue is completely backlogged. So uh, I'm going to be as part of the next wave of bookings, but uh, they're not even done with the stuff they'd already booked and written contracts for. So um, so I haven't had a chance to participate in one and show during one yet, but uh, but I did look at, at one of them, the, the first one that they did, and watch as it was happening. Um, it's it, it does a good job of showing the painting, um, but each gallery seems to be doing such a different approach to talking about it. And, you know, the, everything but just showing the work is so different from gallery to gallery that I'm not sure how to be like blanket statementy about whether they're working or not. Like some of them are working great. Others are just travesties. And uh, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to show like any consistency to it yet. Cause I feel like they're all just still getting how to do this and it's, it's still too new to all of them. So they're not, there's no good strategy yet for anyone that's become the norm at least. Um, which so I, I think they could be great. They could be a great way to do this. I think um, basically like the tech we use here on Twitch is probably going to be really handy. Like you know lapel mics and uh, and using Wi-Fi with a mobile camera that you can walk around with. That yeah, that'd be a really good idea. Um, running a, a live stream that you could have roaming with like the artist actually talking instead of just like you know just wandering around talking to myself or, you know, doing a couple of, of slow pan videos and doing a voiceover, like a couple of the different versions I've seen are just not, they're not engaging enough. There, there's not enough interaction. And, uh, and that's, that's a big component that I just, I want to see brought back. It seems like VR would be a, a place to bring this like though maybe i'm being naive uh, i'm sure somebody that knows more about this world uh, would be able to slap this down if i am but yeah like virtual reality spaces you know where you have like really fucking nice high resolution images and scans of the artwork in a gallery setting where i mean i do understand that requires the ability for everybody else to be on board with this but it's like maybe there could be some like hybrid kind of thing or like so if you got the the vr headset you can do that but if you're you know maybe there's some other interface in a more traditional desktop kind of thing i don't know as yeah i think the resistance to technology is going to be an interesting thing because uh I, as much as it sucks uh people with more money are older for the most part because they've been on the planet longer and had time to accrue more money. Um, yeah, it's just that's the a kicker. fact of existence. Yeah. So they also don't like tech as much at least, um, or are not as quick to adopt it. Um, and uh, that, that is a, a tough bar that like people who are not comfortable with new technologies and that take a lot of, uh, time getting used to them are not as quick to jump on board with um, uh, with VR and things like it that are so new and so complicated to them that like it it's 
it's a different bar to entry to them. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the issue that I have seen. Also, like Tutu mentioned also, like you have to have tech that works for it well enough. And like, if you're of the older generation, you are probably using your nine year old monitor, like you just said, and not upgrading it to a new one when it, when a new resolution comes out or when you want a faster one or, you know, you're not changing your tech to update to the times because you've had more time to accrue these long lasting objects that are now old. And, yeah, uh, sure. I guess I'm just thinking of like new spaces, you know, like, um, yeah, places where like new things can start happening that aren't necessarily yeah. reliant, you know, even it create whatever barriers of entry there had been to that sort of like old way of doing things, creating a new space that yes, will have barriers of entry in themselves, but that it's, it's new. It's something new, but I, without dwelling too much on hypotheticals and long, long game stuff, more short term, what's your uh, forward projection look like? What kind of things are you doing to pivot and compensate? Uh, I am shifting everything um in my world basically uh i'm shifting my my workshops to to videos i'm shifting my lessons to private um online uh i have shifted all of my like odd jobs to uh basically nothing because nobody wants to have me come into their home anymore and clean their brushes or into their studios because there's nobody in person anymore but uh uh, I'm mostly focusing on like the the framing side of things for that kind of thing, and like little jobs like that are are how I'm adapting that one. Um, and uh, and mostly it's I'm trying to bring my collectors into um, like I'm not treating it as much as a barrier to entry for them, but more like they're resistant. Let's let's coax them into the web world. Let's let's bring them in because. Um, uh, because I, I feel like it has a, a domino effect too, where like they know each other. So if I teach one, he teaches another. It's, you know, it's teach a man to fish. And, uh, and now he can teach another to fish. And now we have a whole bunch of fishermen. Um, and that's, that's what I'm hoping for is that I'm, I'm trying to get my clients one, one by one more used to at least one piece of the tech that is necessary to do it digitally now um and uh and it's a it's a slow very one-on-one -on -one interaction with each of them um and then uh and then our other subject that we've talked about is i'm looking into nfts right now um as they're i'm still skeptical and uh and kind of like half educated on it so i'm you know i'm still very much researching and trying to get into it uh well you Fuck but, yourself uh, now, dude. You've been canceled. I've been I, it canceled. Just, it just came up on Twitter right now. Okay. Oh, no. ASAP Fine Canceled. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that you have access to the internet anymore. Uh, oh, sorry. no. I'm Say, ruined. This is, this is the they only cut me off. These, these are your last words, man. Make it count. These are my last words. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> since, you, since you opened the can of worms, uh, let's, just, let's, just, <laughs> let's just do it. Uh... Yeah, go, let's go right uh, into it. Know. Um, I know this one's yeah. <laughs> NFTs. So barrel of monkeys in here. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was coming. So, so yeah, we're gonna just we're gonna we're gonna skip over some things. We're gonna assume 
a lot on the part of the viewer as far as like what they do or don't know about nfts and with due respect we're going to kind of like ignore for the time being what they may feel about nfts because i'm curious to know how nfts and traditional art um come together uh it's, it's hard enough for some people to wrap their heads around nfts but there's at least this like one-to-one -one when it comes to pairing it with digital art that it's all digital when it comes to traditional artwork how does that work what's happening there uh it is weird and i'm i'm trying to keep up with it um there have been a bunch of people trying it i've seen a bunch of people uh dip their toe in the water and then immediately delete all trace of them ever dipping their toe in that lake and just running screaming for the hills um i've also seen a couple of people just get real quiet and not talk about anything they're doing ever again um and uh and i i think you know that's kind of the like some people are making a success out of it and some people are not and it is it's very wild and all over the place because they're all taking different strategies. Um, the most successful one I've seen so far uh, is one that, uh, what is his name? Serge Marshaninikov, um, a Russian dude, um, has been doing. He's a really big artist and, um, you know, almost, uh, almost auction house, more like a New York gallery level. Um, and, uh, and he started doing nfts recently he's been getting huge amounts of pushback um despite the fact that it is working for him um he started out by selling one copy of each painting in a digital format in addition to the uh, original being sold separately and people took badly to that as they were seeing both for sale at the same time um and uh, so he shifted it to doing a hundred of them. And if you buy one of them, then you can buy the original, but you have to buy a digital NFT in order to buy the actual painting. Um, it was a, a ticket basically to the raffle as it were, but, uh, or to the auction, um, which worked fairly well and didn't seem to make as many people angry because it felt more like a, it felt more like a token and less like like they were trading the painting, um, which was what a lot of the blue chip collectors got real salty about. And uh, in general, they're just not happy about this. Blue chip collectors don't like this. So, you know, the big the big boys are not not enjoying it as far as uh, big money goes. Um, but uh, but it seems like his his latest way of doing it is the is the best way he's found so far which is he takes old like he stumbled into this one actually there was a painting that he lost in the mail um someone stole it by mail theft basically they they ordered it and then they charged back and it had already gotten mailed to them so once it arrived they just kept it um he had a digital image of it but he'd never gotten like he'd he'd basically had it stolen so he put the NFT up and was like, this is a stolen piece of artwork. This is the only legitimate copy that exists. The original is an illegitimate copy. So who wants to buy this? And that got his collectors to pay attention to it and go, oh, there's a thing for this. This is a real idea. This isn't just like, 
this isn't just playing with photocopies. This is a, this could be a real thing. And now he's doing a, if you buy the NFT, you can buy the original. That's the only way you can buy the original um, is you have to buy the NFT too. So he's finding, he's basically putting himself on the line to make NFTs real in a lot of ways now. Um, which I think That's is an interesting. About. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So sorry. No, yeah, that's all good. Uh, that was about all I had. No, that that idea approach, of though. doing a raffle personally, like 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 if he raffled it off, I would be totally cool with that. But like having to buy the NFT to have to buy the painting in an auction, I I actually personally wouldn't be down for that. But I probably also can't afford his painting, so that that's probably not an issue. Yeah, because I think part of what he was going with is he he mar he was marketing the exclusivity of his paintings anyway. That like, if you're already selling at an exclusive high class gallery, the people coming in feel that exclusivity. They feel like you know they're not going to run into to you know to anybody who they don't really want to talk to. They're they're going to run into more akin to them basically, and uh, and that 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 like I'm amongst my peers kind of feeling is is part of what makes it successful i think is that like they have enough money to be like yeah i'll buy the ticket you know it's just the auction it's not going to be the most expensive ticket either i, I don't remember what they were for but it was like a hundred dollars or something like that it wasn't uh for those people that's you know that's a nice dinner and that's kind of where they went with it it's like this is going to be an experience that so I think you know. Sorry, that story that you, that you told about the the uh, the thief ending up with the fake painting because he said like no that's a now illegitimate, and this NFT is is real is fascinating. There's I mean, there's so many things that I want to talk about just in that. I'm thinking of like the Star Trek transporter conundrum where it's like, did I just kill you and create a copy? Or is this like, actually who is the real Spencer? Uh -huh. um, but it also makes me think of this, like this real, this really old philosophical um, uh, mental exercise. Um, it's some dude's boat. I can't remember the name of it, but that's like the name of the mental exercise. It's some, uh, someone's boat. <laughs> and so he's like, I want to replace all my wood planks or all of the wood pieces on this oak boat with teak. So the, the shipmaster one by one replaces all of the oak with teak. And then there's all of this like scrap oak laying in his shipyard. And he puts it all back together in the exact same formation that it was before he disassembled it. Which one is now the real boat? And it's like this is this like weird uh, Chinese puzzle for philosophers for like centuries like trying like arguing there's no solution which is the real fucking boat because this question of identity is like impossible to resolve when you're talking about human subjective opinion and i don't know did this dude just solve that problem <laughs> i mean maybe <laughs> ah that's uh that's it's in the same vein as like when you know our cells fall off every seven years or are the cells that lay on on the ground all around about the world is that us or are they the new batch of cells that are now walking around in this meat suit like 
<sighs> it's a good conundrum. I I, I wonder he's got he might have solved it. <laughs> I mean, I don't. It's very it's really interesting that um, I mean all of that is an interesting philosophy stuff. But the um, NFT things with real art to me actually seems like it. <laughs> It almost makes more sense with traditional art to use NFTs than with digital art. Um, Why but, is that? Well, because it's just like a secure way of um, keeping track of ownership, essentially, right? Uh, not not in the way of like um, because in the digital file, it's it like it's a way of keeping ownership, but it's also meaningless in a way because like the video or the, the, the JPEG or whatever, like everyone can have it. And then someone just says, nope, but I have ownership of it, which, okay, great. Like, but I can still have it on my computer. It means nothing. <laughs> but if you're holding something in your hand, then you have, you have physical ownership of it. And this is just documenting it as it goes along kind of thing. And I don't know if I follow. Um, it, you say that it's anybody can have a copy of the JPEG, but the idea is that any those are those are illegitimate copies. In the same way that I mean, a forgery is a forgery, a fake is a fake. You know, if I if I if I mint a piece of artwork with a NFT, a digital piece of artwork uh, with an NFT, that's the only one of those that that will exist yes and no because the um the artwork isn't actually in the nft the nft is just a token that says has some information in it it doesn't have the artwork it doesn't have the video in it at most it has like a link to it um but it doesn't have any anything in it it's it, it's um it's a it's a file that has a bunch of bunch of information in it but not the digital image it's a it's actually a much smaller file uh from my understanding that what the real file is is very very small relatively speaking i think uh i think it's an interesting uh you you cited the idea of it being like a history of the painting sale for instance um one of the interesting parts of it is because nfts can be traded separately from the original painting like you have to buy the nft in order to buy the painting but once you buy the painting and the nft you can sell the nft and not sell the painting they don't have to travel together after that point depending depending on how it's written in the contract right because like and if, if these are essentially smart, it. right, they're essentially smart contracts. So what it, it becomes very interesting because it also, it also uh, adds something very interesting with what you said about the boat conundrum, because theoretically, this is the most like messed up thing, but you could essentially buy, if someone was selling the artwork and the NFT together, you could buy an NFT, get the artwork, make a copy of it, sell the NFT and sell the copy. And you essentially sold a forgery. But, but this is what I'm talking about. I don't it, mean it to gets interrupt real, you. NFTs make the world really complicated is what I think. I'm, uh, they are and complicated, I, I will say. Yeah. 
and I don't want to like try and oh, hand wave the complexity away with oversimplification, but in the course of describing these kinds of things, inevitably words like forgery, copy, all of those words come up. So where I have a hard time um, drawing a distinction or like agreeing with there being like some kind of hard distinction between like this world of forgeries and this world of, of forgeries is that in each, in each case, you're talking about a forgery. Like whatever ends up making it, whatever set of parameters ends up making it not the real one, you're still in a case where it's not the real one. And in both cases, it requires an agreement on a certain amount of people to say, yes, this is the thing. Because I can forge a dollar bill that would be uh, completely, uh, you know, hypothetically, I could forge a dollar bill that would be uh, indistinguishable from a real dollar bill. But ultimately, someone is going to be able to figure out, trace it back, where did this come from? That's not a real dollar bill, you know what I mean? And so... Yeah, I, I, I think idea, I'm sorry, not to interrupt you. I'm sorry. No, no, that's, just please. one more, one more thought on that. It's just this idea of like, what is real, <laughs> you know? And when you start talking about that, it's, this is a matter of consensus. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that, like, I think it's a, I think NFTs are a good way of, if you like, ideally I could see them being used for like if I were to sell my paintings, but sell them through NFTs, that'd be cool because then there would be a clear record of who owns the painting. So if someone, so some random person wouldn't be able to be like, I have the original and you can go look at the NFT and see who technically owns it at the moment. Um, yes, every, there can be forgers and people can be nefarious, but realistically, like most people aren't going to forge paintings. Like that's not the most common thing in the world. I I've tried to do a copy of a master study. It is ridiculously hard. Um, so, you know, like realistically, that's not going to be the most common thing in the world. So NFTs are a great thing for like um, keeping track of, or a document of authenticity, essentially for real paintings. That's where I think they actually... They work really well for that. Um, they just need to be really easy to do and cheap and um, agreed upon. And then also, I don't think that a lot of people are going to resell a lot of my paintings um, or most artists' paintings. So then it becomes an issue of like in 50 years, who's going to like, you know, who, then who cares at that point? <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think in, in some ways, I think we're sit we're attaching the item too much to the token that is the NFT um, because in, in a lot of ways there's completely separate objects. And that's one of the things that I think is, is the most nebulous about it is it, it could operate if they travel together with a traditional painting, it could operate as a much better record for the history of a painting than say the stickers that have been stuck on the back in past uh, historical references to tracking a provenance. Exactly. That's, that's but, how I'm looking at it. Yeah, and there, you're right. There is another way, which you're uh, alluding to uh, for sure. I think the other way is that 
it is it is trading on the value of the piece of art not the piece of art the that that is one of the things that i think it it was intended to be set up for when it comes to art but it, it it's very hard to do that it's a very complicated like how how valuable is an image and if you trade with it does it increase the value of it is it like does that increase the value of the actual image uh and that's how i see it as like as a long-term perspective um way for it to matter like not necessarily in the next two years but like in 50 years will only it will only make any difference in terms of like the value of your art could increase and like you could increase tiers from like the gallery system for instance by having your art traded enough that people recognize like oh it's that painting that nft is worth a shitload these this is the real collection from that person now their originals are worth more like I, I, I hope for it to be tied more to that and finding a way to standardize the value of your work for, for the ability to raise it rather than trying to make it a, a sales venue. Cause we have plenty of sales venues. I don't, I don't feel like that's the most in need thing. I feel like the in need thing we need is like, how do we keep it so that like a exactly similar quality of painting from, uh, from, Lisa Kutch, uh, like a low level San Francisco artist who's in a, a local gallery who paints virtually identical quality to a New York gallery artist in, in Arcadia. Um, how do we keep those two values separate and, and like rate them against each other to break from the old world model, which, which is not sustainable in the long term, especially now that we've moved away from, from the old style and like old money. Um, yeah, I don't. Well, you've you've just proposed uh, another aspect of complication, which is quality of work. Because, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> but I think in all cases, the the common underlying uh, thread is a, a documentation of information. It's uh, it's record keeping is ultimately what it comes down to. So this notion of like, you know, where the nft is located compared to where the artwork is located and you know an nft is just a link back to an image all that yes but in terms of the network that the nft exists on that's like where the un that's that's where the record keeping is held so that's 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 the common denominator so to to my mind it's it's hard for me to make these like hard distinguish hard delineations between like well, this is a this use case makes sense. This use case doesn't because it, it it all has that theme of of record keeping. In the chat, someone was saying to drive this point home. I think I'll sell an NFT of this podcast episode. They made that point as tongue in cheek for an argument, you know, against a a, a digital format, um, you know, or a digital work having an NFT. But it's interesting. Because this idea of of digital noises being a source, a, a a big point of contention when it comes to piracy and uh, you know illegitimate copies, and we think about musicians who want to profit and benefit from their music being exchanged amongst parties that 
they have nothing to do with once they've made the recording and sent it out into the world. An NFT is a way to do that. And so while, yes, the, the, the music itself is not connected to the NFT, that NFT, that, that record keeping allows the artist to maintain control uh, over his intellectual property outside and beyond the actual creation of it on his hard drive. I mean, to, to me, so what I'm saying is, to me, I'm talking about the effectiveness of the record keeping rather than the connection of like value, you know, or the perception of what is real. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's a, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a complicated, this is really complicated to try to break down because it's like digital work is, is what I, I kind of agree in some ways that digital is harder to equate in an in a tangible way for understanding nfts like in some ways i kind of agree with lee that like the physical object of a painting kind of makes it more wraparoundable with your brain like even if it is still really convoluted there's something physical which just kind of gives me something i can you know i can put my hands on somehow that like like where is the physical object going kind of is easier to keep track of if you know what I mean, than the digital object. But you um, don't physically put your hands on music. No, but I, I do put my hands on the physical album, like the the CDs and the and on on Spotify. I mean, well, you know, I guess now I'm old. And I'm not trying. And I'm not trying <laughs> it, to be like ah, gotcha. I'm not. You know, I'm not trying to trap you in a gotcha. <laughs> no, moment. It's like a legitimate question. Yeah, you know? NFTs get super complicated because yeah. it, it there's there's so many different aspects to nfts that make it complicated because there's it's record keeping it's tracking who owns things there's also the aspect of money right now you know that like which is something that i talked about earlier which is like no one who buys my art would want to sell my art you know unless it was like for a crazy amount of money but like no one buys my art to make money off of it they buy my art because they like my art and Right now, it seems like all the NFTs, people are buying it to sell it to make money, which is kind of like the, the like super high-end art market uh, thing. That I agree and, with. Being yeah. Really weird. Totally. No argument. And, but yeah. NFTs get super strange because like, just as an example, if you've gone to a gallery, like a museum, and you took a photo at the museum, right? Like... Okay, I have a I have a photo of let's say let's just say I have a photo of the Mona Lisa because I went went there and saw it and I own that photo of the Mona Lisa. I don't own the Mona Lisa. I don't own the rights to the Mona Lisa, but I own the I own the right the photo that I took. I can make it an NFT. Then what? Like it gets super ridiculous like really really fast um it gets complicated. And, yeah it gets really complicated but as, as soon as you tie it to the real thing from the original artist it gets a lot simpler it's not perfect uh and it that doesn't uh solve the issues that digital artists have which is really you know digital artists have a really hard time uh with some aspects of things because like you know they're artists just like traditional artists but you you can't hold their stuff you know you can't like there's just something so satisfying about tangibly holding a real p 
painting that you painted or that someone you someone an artist you love painted like i don't know there's just something different about it absolutely um i i would love to go for another six hours on this <laughs> I, I think that it would be great if we did it another time um but in coming to a to coming to close um i just wanted to make sure that we had kind of touched on what we needed to with nfts in regards to you know your position uh it, it, we chatted a little bit before the show and you had alluded to artists that had uh if i'm quoting you correctly pulled themselves out of poverty using nfts in their traditional art can you expand on that a little bit more uh the two that i i know specifically actually did digital art um to to do so but uh um that or that that have had that positive of a result um i i don't necessarily want they're still very i I found this weird thing with like people who have done really well with nfts uh quickly shut up about it to everybody else and they don't want to invite more people into the party um so i've found that that tends to be the case um they don't really want to invite more yet they're still i feel like they're still making so much off of it right now that like telling other people who are you know even beyond like close friends it feels like uh they don't really want to just like get everybody in on it because i think it's partly a market dilution thing like it's so new that like they're afraid that if we all put our work up there at once nobody's gonna buy it or there's not going to be enough money to go around and uh i i understand that yeah moose uh, mentioned in the chat that uh nfts have this is an unconfirmed statistic but uh comes from a relatively uh reliable source 60 percent of N- or NFT sales have dropped 60% over the last month. And that's interesting to me because it's something that I kind of like to underscore in all of this is that like what it's doing now is probably going to be very different than what it does five years from now. And I think that yeah. we can, uh, even though I talk more about it than most anybody, I also go into it with this sort of reservation of judgment that like let's not judge the future of this based on what's happening with it i think it's super interesting the concept of nfts and everything but i i don't think like i I agree with you joby i think it's going to be not what it's not what it's doing right now but in like i don't know five or ten years when it's as common as like paypal or something like that like as soon as you can as soon as it becomes as common and as easy as like hey you know I want to buy this, just send over the NFT, like, or something, you know, simple like that, like that everyone can do. Then, then it, what it does will be really fascinating or what people figure out to do with it. Cause like good for the artists who are making money now, you know, good on them. Yeah, absolutely. Which also speaks or can speak briefly to the uh, environmental concern, which I'll just touch on momentarily. Not that it matters because probably no one has made it <laughs> this far into the conversation except like three people uh, as far as the recording goes but uh the not all nfts are created equal um proof of stake is a different way of creating uh, or minting that has a very different uh energy profile to it um so i would just i, I won't go into a belabored rant about it i would just encourage people to um uh 
find out more. Your concern is the environmental impact. Uh, don't let your research stop at the, you know, the anger and animosity that you've heard spilling from a lot of people. Uh, look, look further into it. There's, uh, there's, there's other things that can be that can be uh, happening in the future. Um, but coming into our wrap up, Spencer, um, are there any projects, plans for the future that we haven't touched on that you wanted to mention? Uh, I mean, you briefly mentioned the the outdoor landscaping plein air stuff that I, I'd like to continue doing. Um, there's a there's a Dahlia festival and uh, a series of other flower festivals and all along the West Coast that I like in specific in Washington that I'd like to uh, set up like an outdoor plein, uh, plein air um, uh, event at basically and start having you know at first I was going to go do a test run and uh, I had invited you uh, in like 2019 um, before you know the world got weird but uh, I was going to go down there and, and set up with them uh, the vendors and um, kind of the the stall area for for some some art supplies and and kind of just like finding out where the farms were and and things like that but uh, but I have yet to take it off so you know that's in the future. Well, hopefully it won't be in the too distant future because, you know, with vaccines coming along and something like that, that's like outdoors, maybe like has more, uh, can happen, you know, a little bit sooner than, than later. People would be a little bit more comfortable being outside it's, uh, spaced yeah. out. Absolutely. Well, where would you like people to go to find you if they wanted to find out uh, more about all of these things in the future, as well as what you're doing now? Uh, I mean, my, my Twitch page is, uh, is where I'll be streaming at. And then my website is, uh, is ASAPfineart.com. Um, and I'm ASAPfineart on Instagram. That's, uh, that's pretty much where, where you'll find me. Well, our trademark final question. Um, aside from work and personal projects, what's one thing that's happening in the world right now that you're excited about? Oh, the vaccines. I want the world back. I hear you. That's about it. Yeah. Nah, that's, <laughs> I just that's, want the world back. That's a that's the big one. Liad, since you're not here every day, same question to you. Yeah. Oh, I, I put me on the spot. <laughs> I I definitely agree with the vaccines. Uh, that looking forward to that. Um, you said aside from personal projects and, um, I mean. I don't know if this counts, but I'm getting a dog for the first time. So I'm excited about that. Spencer had to run away for some unknown reason. So in the meantime, tell us more about the dog because we all love dogs. Um, yeah, my, uh, my girlfriend is a dog lover and want has been wanting a dog for a long time. We have three cats and um, I have been very hesitant to get a dog, but we're finally, we're getting one. He's a six-year-old uh, Australian Shepherd. So fingers crossed it works out. Picking him up on Tuesday. You said 16-year-old? Six-year-old. Oh, Sorry. six-year-old. Oh, okay. Six-year-old. I didn't, if I misspoke, yeah. I might have just misheard. Australian Shepherd. <laughs> Your brave soul. Yes. Oh, good man. Sorry about that. My dog actually just kicked the door to the studio open. <laughs> oh, yeah, my, that's my where cat you ran came in. 
I can't lock my I can't lock my cat outside of my studio because he just scratches at the door and it started making grooves in it. I will tear a hole yeah, in this that's if how you don't the let door me here in. Looks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my dog weighs enough that she can just kind of put her shoulder into the door and lean real hard, and it pops open eventually. <laughs> so I was, that's why I was like, I was like, what the fuck is this noise? Oh, oh! She just comes in and starts barking. Nice. Yeah, it's the joys of dogs, right? Well, perfect way to end this conversation. Uh, thank you both so much. This has been great. It, I, I feel like it couldn't have gone better. Um, I, it would be fun if you guys were into it. Um, it would be fun to talk to you guys more about NFTs in the future. Liad, I know you and I have kind of talked about that. So yeah, maybe we could do another. Uh, roundtable of NFT conversations. Yeah, I'm sure. I feel like this is a this is a place where more information needs to go out. So anyway, with that said, uh, thank you guys both. But Spencer, uh, especially thanks to you, man. Uh, looking forward this to this for a while and appreciate oh, your time. Thanks for having me, man. Cool. Well, I will yeah. wave goodbye and hit end on the record.